Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey haunt our country. We shall not weary and we shall not rest. We are thousands strong to tell the world reverse Roe versus Wade. Welcome again to Life After Dobbs. I'm Ryan Anderson, the president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center. And on this podcast, my co-host Alexander DeSanctis and I explore the history and future of the pro-life movement by hearing from leading activists and scholars. Alexandra and I are also the co-authors of the new book, Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing, which has just been released and which you can purchase wherever books are sold. With the Supreme Court's historic ruling in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, Roe v. Wade is finally gone. It's almost hard to believe. But there are many who did believe that this day would come, and many whose efforts helped to bring it about. In today's episode, we pay tribute to one of them, Father Richard John Newhouse. And we have the unique opportunity to hear from Father Newhouse in his own words. Father Newhouse, who died in 2009, was a prolific author, the founding editor of First Things, and one of the leading public theologians of our time. He was a longtime board member of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and I had the great fortune to work for him and to live with him for what ended up being the last two years of his life. It was a wonderful experience. Uh, Father lived on the ground floor apartment. I lived on the fourth floor apartment. Every night at 7 p.m., we would do evening prayer. Every Saturday, we would have a family uh, dinner. It was almost like uh, an intellectual salon and an unofficial master's degree in political theology. The speech you're about to hear was delivered by Father Newhouse at the close of the 2008 convention of the National Right to Life Committee, which was held just months before he died. We owe special thanks to the National Right to Life Committee for retrieving this audio from their archives and giving us permission to publish it in full. This may, in fact, be the first time that the audio of this speech has been publicly shared since Father Newhouse first delivered it. We'll also put a link in the show notes to the text of the speech published by First Things. The speech, which EPPC board member Robbie George has called the greatest pro-life speech ever given, is Father Newhouse's parting exhortation to those who would continue the work to which he devoted decades of his life, and a reminder of the hope in which we labor. It is a reminder to all of us that our work is not finished. Though we rightly celebrate the end of Roe, Father Newhouse reminds us that until every human being created in the image and likeness of God is protected in law and cared for in life, we shall not weary, we shall not rest. As we listen to Father Newhouse's wise words, let us resolve to continue the work to which he and so many others devoted their lives. Thank you all. Thank you very much. And thank you for that generous introduction. It's getting late, so I shall try not to keep you too long, as Henry VIII said to his third wife. Um, This is, I think, the third time I've been privileged to uh, address the National Right to Life Convention. And once again this year, the National Right to Life Convention is partly a reunion of veterans from battles past, and partly a youth rally of those recruited for the battles to come. And that is just 
the way it ought to be. The pro-life movement that began in the 20th century laid the foundation for the pro-life movement of the 21st century. We have, most of us, been at this a very long time. And we are aware that we have just begun. All that has been and all that will be is prelude to and anticipation of an indomitable hope. All that has been, all that will be, is premised upon the promise of our Lord's return in glory. When, as we read in the book of Revelation, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, and neither shall there be sorrow, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away, and he who sits upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. That is the horizon of hope, that from generation to generation sustains the great human rights cause of our time and of all time, the cause of life. We have contended. We contend. And we will contend relentlessly for the dignity of the human person, of every human person, created in the image and likeness of God, destined from eternity to be, just to be, destined from eternity for eternity, every human person, no matter how weak or how strong, no matter how young or how old, how productive or how burdensome, how welcome or how inconvenient. Nobody is unwanted. All are wanted by God and therefore to be protected, respected, cherished by us. We who have been recruited to this cause, we shall not weary and we shall not rest 
until every unborn child is protected in law and welcomed in life. We shall not weary. We shall not rest until all the elderly who have run life's course are protected against despair and abandonment, protected by the rule of law and the bonds of love. We shall not weary, we shall not rest until every young woman is given the help she needs to recognize the problem of pregnancy as the gift of life. We shall not weary, we shall not rest, as we stand guard at the entrance gates of life and the exit gates of life and every step along the way bearing witness in word and deed to the dignity of the human person, of every human person. Against the encroaching shadows of the culture of death, against forces commanding immense power and wealth, against the perverse doctrine that a woman's dignity depends upon her right to destroy her child, against what St. Paul calls the principalities and powers of the present time. The word from this convention is that we will not, we shall not, weary, we shall not rest until the culture of life is reflected in the rule of law and lived in the law of love. Until then, we shall not weary and we shall not rest. It has been a long journey. And there's still miles and miles to go. Some say that it started with the notorious Roe versus Wade decision of 1973, when by what then Justice Byron White called an act of raw judicial power, the court eliminated from all the law books of all 50 states, every protection of unborn human life. But it goes back, of course, long before Roe v. Wade. Some say it started with the agitation for liberalized abortion law in the 1960s, when the novel, then novel doctrine was proposed that a woman's fulfillment depends upon her lethal exercise of power 
against the most helpless. But it goes back long before that, actually. It goes back as the fine remarks from the young man from Virginia reminded us earlier, it goes back to the movements for eugenics and racial and ideological cleansing of the last century. Whether those movements were led by enlightened liberals such as Margaret Sanger or by brutal totalitarians whose names shall live in infamy, the doctrine and the practice was that some people stood in the way of progress and were therefore non-persons, living, as it were, lives unworthy of life, Lebens und Wertesleben, in the language of Nazi Germany. But it goes back even before that, goes back to the institution of slavery, in which human beings were declared to be chattel property, to be bought and sold and used and discarded at the whim of their masters. It goes way on back. Pope John Paul the Great wrote in his historic message, Evangelium Vitae, the Gospel of Life. He wrote that the culture of death goes all the way back to that fateful afternoon when Cain struck down his brother Abel. And the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And Cain said, Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said to Cain, the voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. The voice of the blood of brothers and sisters beyond numbering cry out from the slave ships and the battlegrounds and the concentration camps and the torture chambers of history and the voice of the innocents, the blood of the innocents, cries out from the abortuaries and the sophisticated technological biotech laboratories of this, our beloved country contending for the culture of life has been a long journey. And there's still miles and miles to go. The culture of death is an idea before it is a deed. I expect many of us here, maybe most of us here, can remember when you were first encountered by the idea, really encountered by it. For me, it was in the 1960s, about 1964, 
And I was pastor of a very poor and very black inner city parish in Brooklyn, New York. And I had read one week an article by a very distinguished professor, Ashley Montague of Princeton University. And the article was about what makes for a life worth living. And he listed, Professor Montague did, a number of measures or criteria of a life worth living. Your life was worth living if you had good health and loving parents and a stable family and economic security and educational opportunity and the prospect of a satisfying career. And so he went on listing those criteria of a life worth living. And I remember, just a young man then, I remember vividly, as though it were yesterday, looking out from the altar of St. John the Evangelist at the people of St. John the Evangelist and seeing all those older faces creased by hardship endured and injustice afflicted and yet radiating hope and undimmed hope and a love unconquered. I saw them and I saw that day from the altar of St. John's, I looked out at the younger faces of the children who were deprived of most, if not in some cases all, of those criteria Professor Montague proposed as the measures of a life worth living. And that Sunday morning, now some 40 plus years ago, it hit me like a, a bolt of lightning, a bolt of lightning that illuminated our moral and our cultural moment, it hit me that Professor Montague and so many others believed that the people of St. John the Evangelist, the people whom I knew and had come to love as people of faith, and kindness, and endurance, under difficult circumstances. It struck me then that by the criteria of the privileged and the enlightened, none of these my people had a life worth living. And in that moment, in that moment I knew that great evil was afoot. 
the great evil of the idea of the culture of death before the deed. In that moment, I knew that I had been recruited to the cause of what John Paul would teach the whole world to call the culture of life. And to be recruited to the cause of the culture of life is to be recruited for the duration, for the duration. And there is no end in sight except to the eyes of faith. Perhaps you too can specify such a moment when you knew you were recruited, when you knew it would not let you go. At that moment, you could have said, yes, it's terrible. It's terrible, all those slaughtered innocents. But then, there are so many terrible things in the world. Am I my infant brother's keeper? Am I my infant sister's keeper? You could have said that, but you didn't. You could have said, yes, it's true, the nation that I love is betraying its founding principles that every human being endowed by God with inalienable rights, including most foundationally the right to life. Yes, that's true, and it's a great pity. But you could have said, let's face it, the Supreme Court has spoken, and its word is the law of the land. And what can I do about it? You could have said that, but you didn't. You knew, you knew there and you knew then that you had been recruited to contend for the culture of life and that you are recruited for the duration. The contention goes on and on between the culture of life and the culture of death. It is not, obviously, it is not a battle of our own choosing. We are not the ones who imposed upon the nation the lethal logic that human beings have no rights we are bound to respect if they are too small, too weak, too dependent, too burdensome. The lethal logic backed by the force of law was imposed by an arrogant elite that has for almost 40 years been telling us to get over it, to get used to it. But we the people, we the people who in this constitutional order are the political sovereign, we have not gotten over it. And we have not gotten used to it. And we will never 
We will never, ever agree that the culture of death is the unchangeable law of the land. We, the people, have not and will not ratify the lethal logic of Roe versus Wade. January 23, 1973, the New York Times reported and all the network news reported, Supreme Court settles abortion dispute. That is 35 years ago. And 35 years later, thank God, there is no more unsettled question in our national life. That decision of 1973 is, I would suggest to you, the most single consequential moral and political event of the last half century of our nation's history. It has produced a dramatic realignment of moral and political forces led by evangelicals and Catholics together and joined by citizens beyond numbering who know that how we respond to this horror defines who we are as individuals and who we are as a nation. Our opponents once so confident, are now on the defensive. They have lost the argument with the American people. And so they all the more desperately cling to the dictates of the courts. No longer able to present themselves as the wave of the future, they watch with dismay as a younger generation, ever more pro-life, recoils in profound repugnance from the bloodletting of an abortion industry so arrogantly imposed by judges who set themselves above the rule of law. We will persist in making the argument persuasively, winsomely, relentlessly, urging upon our fellow citizens a better vision of who they are and of the country of which we are part, eliciting, if you will, what Abraham Lincoln called the better angels of our nature. One of the great blessings of my life was to work, especially for the last four years of his life before he was killed on April 4th of 1968, to work closely with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And one of the things that Dr. King would frequently say, and that deserves a more prominent place in the anthologies of his writings, 
is that he would say, whom you would change, you must first love, and they must know that you love them. Whom you would change, you must first love, and they must know that you love them, which is simply to say what every good parent knows, what every good teacher knows, what every good priest knows, and that is that people will not accept their leadership except from those who they are convinced have their interests at heart. We in the pro-life movement are proposing a better way for our country persistently, lovingly, persuasively. It's a marvelous line in one of the great, of the many great encyclicals of John Paul II, whom history will certainly call John Paul the Great. It's in the encyclical called Redemptoris Missio, the mission of the Redeemer. And he speaks about how it is in our culture, people are so nervous and reluctant to speak the truth, lest it seem that you are trying to impose your truth upon me or impose your morality upon me. Who are you to impose on me? And the Holy Father, John Paul II, in Redemptoris Missio, has this wonderful line. He says, the church imposes nothing. She only proposes. The church imposes nothing. She only proposes. But what she proposes, she believes to be the truth. And human beings, whether they know it or not, are hardwired for the truth. And the truth imposes itself. And so it is in the contention for the culture of life. We are proposing. It is in this cause, as indeed in the entire mission and ministry of the church, a matter of understanding what St. Paul is talking about. You remember in 1 Corinthians, in the first 12 chapters of 1 Corinthians, and how difficult a time St. Paul was having and dealing with the Corinthians. Sometimes people say, let's go back to the innocence and harmony and love of the early church. Right. <laughs> Just go read Corinthians. I mean, these were a difficult bunch of people, riddled with factions and rivalries and on and on. And Paul is saying, please don't do it that way. Please do it this way, etc." And then he gets to the end of chapter 12. And he says, let me show you a more excellent way. And then, of course, follows the unsurpassable hymn of love, 1 Corinthians 13. Though I speak with the tongue of men and angels and have not love, I am an empty gong. Faith, hope, love, these three abide, and the greatest of these is love. Our movement is inspired, impelled, driven by love. Proposing to the world, proposing to our society a more excellent way, a more excellent way, a way more worthy 
of who people want to believe they are, of the kind of people they want to believe they are. We do not know. We do not need to know how the battle for the dignity of the human person will be resolved. God knows, and that is enough. As Mother Teresa of Calcutta and saints beyond numbering have said, our task is not to be successful, but to be faithful. Yet in that faithfulness is the lively hope of success. We are the stronger because we are unburdened by delusions. We know that in a sinful world, far short of the promised kingdom of God, we know there will always be great evils. The principalities and the powers, as St. Paul calls them, they will continue to rage, but they will not prevail. In the midst of the encroaching darkness of the culture of death, we have heard the voice of the one who is life, who says, in the world you will have trouble, but fear not. I have overcome the world. And because he has overcome, we shall overcome. We do not know when and we do not know how. God knows that is enough. We know the justice of our cause. We trust in the faithfulness of his promise. And therefore, we shall not weary and we shall not rest. Whether in this great contest between the culture of life and the culture of death, to which we were recruited many years ago or recruited just yesterday, we have been recruited for the duration. And you go from this convention refreshed in the resolve to fight the good fight, to go from this convention in the words of the prophet Isaiah ringing in your ears. They who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not be faint. The journey has been long. And there are miles and miles to go. From this convention, the word is carried to every neighborhood, to every house of worship, to every congressional office, to every state house, to every precinct of this beloved country. The word is carried that until every human being 
created in the image and likeness of God, is protected in law and cared for in life. Until that happens, we shall not weary. We shall not rest. And in the greatest human rights struggle of our time and of all times, we shall overcome. We shall overcome. That was Father Richard John Newhouse's speech from the 2008 Convention of the National Right to Life Committee. His words are a powerful inspiration to all who continue his work today. And his vision is core to what we do at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. If you'd like to learn more about that work, including our new Life and Family Initiative, you can visit our website at eppc.org. And as I mentioned, Alexander DeSanctis and I are the authors of the new book, Pairing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. You can order now. This podcast is produced by the Ethics and Public Policy Center. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, leave a review, and share it with a friend. And be sure to join us again next time on Life After Dobbs.